0: Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward and along with me, the creator of the show and my co-host, Mr. Tom Jokic. Christopher,
1: this is another good one and let me just tell you that a few months ago, I told you a story about one of my favorite moments in my personal career and that was flying down to Miami to interview the Bee Gees. So all three Bee Gees, still alive, Morris is still around, Robin is still around and Barry is is alive. That is, is maybe my favorite moment ever, but today's first interview is my second favorite and maybe tied for first, and that is in 2000, I flew down to LA to interview Don Henley. And I've been holding this interview back for so long, first of all, (laughs) because it's incredibly long, and so I had to edit it down so that it could be, you know, we could put it in just through a couple segments Well, Don is
0: not known for his brevity.
1: Oh, dear. Well, what they told me. So, they tell me... Uh, Tom you've got 40 minutes with Don Henley I'm got 40 minutes oh my god I have to prepare like 50 in- you get one question well, in. <laughs> That was I, I prepared like 50 questions right and we were 17 minutes in and he was still answering the first question right <laughs> so I figure I am done I'll tell you a little bit more about that when we get into the first segment in just a second but that was really one of the highlights for me uh, my conversation with Don Henley from the year 2000 upon the release of the album Inside Jobs so we'll talk about that right and then we go to 1997 and it is prime time for Sarah McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. so we'll talk about that we have an excellent interview we're almost going to play the whole interview for, for you because there's so much good stuff in it um, the interviewer a guy named Lee Ackley did an excellent job and Sarah is in excellent form she's so informative she talks about songwriting she talks about Lilith Fair more on that in a few minutes
0: yeah there's no need to edit Sarah McLaughlin. No. she's so articulate
1: yeah she's excellent it's a yeah. great piece so let's talk about Don Henley
0: yes sir i
1: Oh, I love that song from 1989, mm-hmm. 1990, Don Henley and the Heart of the Matter from a great album called The End of the Innocence." What a master songwriter, It huh? really is. And you, he's going to talk in great depth about his songwriting in this segment. So I flew down to L.A. in the year 2000, April of 2000, upon the release of his album Inside Job, which wasn't a big album for him. And so I think, you know, the record company said, you know, we got to get him to do as much promotion as we can because the album was very, very good. I remember it. Did it have that song, My Thanksgiving, on it? Yes, it did. Right. Gorgeous song. That's right. And he talks in this interview about gratitude, and that's based on a question about My Thanksgiving. At the time, I asked him about his life at the time as we're kind of getting set up. He has three kids, four years old, two years old, and three weeks old. So imagine now they're 18 years, 20 years and 22 years old. Imagine how much of his life has changed. But he's in a really good place. And in this first clip, he talks about how having kids has filled the hole in his life.
2: I started thinking about children several years ago, and I I knew that there was a big hole in my life, despite all my success and all my my activities in the charitable world and all my friends and good fortune. There was something missing. And uh, that's what it was. You know, even though I haven't been... On the charts as a solo artist during the 90s, I've never been busier. I'm currently working 16 hours a day, which I don't mind doing, you know, I'm, I'm just glad to be working. And uh, life is full, life is just full to overflowing.
1: Yeah, so you can see he's very happy there. And he also talked about his upbringing, and I love this, and how rock and roll was an escape and salvation for him.
2: I grew up in a town of 2,400 people, wasn't near. Any big city, no metropolitan area nearby at all. We had one red light, one post office, one courthouse, one Dairy Queen, and one school. But as you say, there were these big powerhouse, uh, they were called clear channel radio stations, that were, had 50,000 watts of power, and they could reach great distances. And I remember I had a little transistor radio, I think it was a GE, and it was kind of a cream-colored plastic little radio. And that was my connection to the outside world. And there was always music in our house. We always had a record player. I was fortunate in that respect. And my mom and dad liked to listen to what I call World War II music. You know, Glenn Miller, Guy Lombardo, things like that. I had cartoon records when I was a kid, cartoon characters. But one day in the 50s, she said, I'm going to the record store. Do you want me to get you anything? And I said, yeah, I just heard a record on the radio called Hound Dog by a guy named Elvis Presley. Would you get that for me? And she said, yeah. And that was the beginning. And uh, that lasted on up through the 50s and into the early 60s. And then the Beatles came along. And that, if I, if, I didn't, if I hadn't known prior to that point what I wanted to do in my life, I knew as soon as I heard the Beatles. I used to listen to them every morning before I went to school to, to help get me through the day. My little support system. Because junior high and high school are, are rough. You know, you're at a very vulnerable time in your life. I love those
0: stories, maybe because so many of the details I share from my own life. You know, that's the transistor radio under the pillow. Yeah. You're trying to keep it just quiet enough that your parents don't hear it in the room down the hall. or you know. And for me, it was 1050 Chum in Toronto. That was the station that I was listening to. I mean, to the point that... From the early 60s, I could probably sing you the theme song for the All Night Show. You want me to do it, don't you? I do not. See, <laughs> <laughs> so it was Bob Lane was the name of the jock who hosted. And uh, he had, oh yes, and I tried, I always tried to stay away till three for the Golden Galaxy because he played all those classic records that I'd never heard before.
1: Right. Those late night radio shows and those clear channel radio shows that mm-hmm. he was talking about, although that's now a name of a company down there. Yes. But those signals that just flew through the evening, flew through the night, to get to these small transistor radios around North America, they were hugely influential. You know, there were there were stations in Montreal, stations in Toronto, stations in Windsor as far as Canada's concerned, um, you know, the Big 8 in uh, in Windsor, in CKLW, Windsor. Yeah. which broadcast mostly into Detroit and the uh, and the northern part of the, uh, I guess they would call it the Midwest or that area anyway, and those were huge stations and so they did have a profound effect and he's listening to stations out of Louisiana but he's also listening Listening to that station out of Shreveport, which runs the Grand Ole Opry, not the Grand Ole Opry, the Louisiana Hay- Hayride, Hayride, right, which is where he first heard Elvis, and then of course the Beatles change his life, and he kind of refers to bullying when he's a kid, how listening to the Beatles would kind of gird him for Shore the rest him up of the, for day. the day. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, I, I love that great. as well. So let's talk about Don Henley and songwriting and the craft of creating songs. So he's always been accused of being a perfectionist. But he truly enjoys that craft, and you can tell. Some of his best songs have a lot of layers, both musically and lyrically. And of course, when your standards are high, it's not always easy to release those songs into the world.
2: It's, it's hard to let go of these songs because they are, in a way, they are like my children. You know, and it's like it's hard to send your kid off to school for the first day of school because you know he's going to get you know, bashed by some of the other kids. You know, and you want you want him or her to be popular. You want them to be well liked, and you want them to be understood. So, sending your songs out into the world is is the same thing. It makes you very vulnerable. A lot of your personal innermost thoughts and feelings appear in these songs, and and they're going to be judged by a lot of people, some of whom don't have good intentions to begin with. Uh, some who some who come into the game of judging with with a great deal of bias and preconceived notions. But that's just part of the game, and that's all right. It hasn't seemed to hurt anything so far. Um, but I do work very hard in the studio. We are fairly meticulous, because I believe that any job worth doing, as the old saying goes, is worth doing well. And I, I have a great deal of respect for the craft of songwriting, which I think is in a pretty sorry state right now. Now, there are those who would argue that songwriting is, especially as it pertains to rock and roll, is not supposed to be polished. And, you know, it's supposed to be rough, it's supposed to be sloppy. You're not supposed to try very hard. And I think that that has been taken to the ultimate right now on the radio. I think people have taken the art of not trying <laughs> to a new low. <laughs> But I come from the old school. I mean, I come out of the 60s tradition, and uh, I think that songs ought to contain some food for thought. Mm -hmm. My goal is to make people think and to make them feel and to make them relate to one another, to make people feel like they are not alone in their thoughts, they are not alone in their feelings, and to create a sense of community through the music.
0: Okay, so this is maybe an apocryphal tale, Tom, but I did run into a guy who was on hard times for a while, and he worked as a courier. Now in LA, couriers delivered everything everywhere. There was a certain period of time, and they were really common. You'd see the bikes everywhere. Anyway, he got sent to what, what turned out to be Don Henley's place. He was told to go around to the back with the package. He went around the back, and there was a sliding door that was open, and it was, I think, you know, a beautiful view out onto the ocean. This is in Malibu, and um, he got there, and a gust of wind came up, and there was a stack of papers on this little table just inside the sliding door that came up into the wind and went all over the backyard. And he panicked, thinking that he was going to be blamed. So he rushed around trying to pick up all the papers as quickly as possible. And then he stopped and he noticed because he thought, well, they're they're all the same. They were the lyrics to The End of the Innocence. And every one that he noticed was just slightly different than the other one. A word (laughs) here, a word there. That's great. So, so gather there's, them up and put them beside the typewriter. Yes, and, no,
1: take them with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and sell them. Well, for him, you know, songwriting was therapy. And so I asked him at the time, is it painful to write deeply personal songs?
2: Sometimes it's almost painful. Most of the time it's just a little bit scary. <laughs> but, you know, you have, to, you have to do that. You have to dig way down. Inside, it's good therapy for me. Actually, I think it's kept me off the psychiatrist's couch for all these years. It's it's my own form of venting. But you do have to to go inside, and you have to think about things that are not necessarily pleasant sometimes, and you have to get them out. Um, and uh, that process can be agonizing. Or if you know how to do it, I mean, I've gotten to the point where it's not so painful anymore. It's just uh, it's just it's just work that has to be done and I I don't wallow in it, you know. But you have to have a certain amount of strength, inner strength and self-confidence. You have to believe that your thoughts and feelings are experienced by other people and you have to try to come up with ways of expressing that that people can relate to. Not necessarily in terms of the way you intended it. You know, people are always asking me, what does this song mean to you and what does that song mean? It doesn't really matter what it means to me. What matters is what it means to you, and these songs are simply a tool for people to get back in touch with those little voices inside themselves and to remind them of what they already know.
1: This is Famous Lost Words, and we're talking with Don Henley from
0: 2000. Christopher? Great interview, Tom. Thanks. I'm so proud of it. You know, I I really love the detail that he goes into here, because I think as soon as you transform your experiences into art, you kind of distance yourself from those events that you've had. and And... It's not to say you haven't inoculated yourself or protected your way, yourself, there's, there's other ways to do that, but you've made the personal universal. And, and I think that's, that's sort of the core of popular music and how writers get it all out onto the page and onto tape.
1: You said that a few weeks ago when we were talking about Taylor Swift and her ability to take really specific detail and somehow the specificity of what she's saying makes it universal, which mm-hmm. is kind of a weird trick. Don Henley's New York Minute. Harry got up, all dressed in black, went down to the station, and he's never coming back. They found his uh, clothes scattered somewhere down the track, and he won't be down on Wall Street anymore. I'm not a Wall Street trader. I don't know what, really what that's about. But it draws you in, and it takes you into that the sadness of that moment mm-hmm. and the curiosity of what happened in this guy's life. And somehow it touches your own. And, uh, and so it's true. Being specific but being personal can really touch other people. So back to the interview with Don Henley. I talked to him during a time of great contentment, and I mentioned that it seemed that he started to embrace the concept of forgiveness with the song Heart of the Matter.
2: But I wrote Heart of the Matter when I was 42 years old. The passage of years is a good thing. It's a good thing. Experience is a great teacher. I've lived more than most, (laughs) I think. And it's all been good, you know, It's even the, even the bad things, that's what the song says, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for all the things, the good, the bad, the ugly, because they all made me who I am and what I am today. Again, we, we sometimes forget what we know and we go back and we have to keep learning the same lesson. I mean, the, the universe will keep pounding you with the same lesson until you learn it. And you can sit around and go, oh, why me? And you can blame, I mean, we, we're so good these days at affixing blame to other things, anybody but ourselves, you know, And the universe will just keep hitting you over the head as long as you sit there and you're not getting it. But when you get it, you go, oh, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I have to make a change. Maybe it's not that thing over there or that person over there or this business, this job. Maybe it's not the system. Maybe it's not the government. Maybe I need to do something about this.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, you <laughs> see, he's starting to get a little cranky there. <laughs> Don't blame other people for your problems, right? You know that song, Get Over It? Yeah. <laughs> get yeah. Over It? And yeah. uh, another song, and I think it might have been from the Inside uh, Job album, They're Not Here, They're Not Coming, and that's about, you know, people who believe in extraterrestrials.
0: <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> I forgot about that one. Yes. So, for a reason. So
1: I also spoke to Don Henley around the time that Napster was just decimating the music industry. And of course many artists suffered because of it. But as Henley pointed out, many artists had also suffered under the large record companies.
2: A lot of artists are so fed up with record companies and the, the, conglom- the mega mergers and the conglomerations and the multinational corporations and they're the, the literally what, what could be called monopolies that are being formed in the record industry. You know, you go to bed and you wake up one morning and you work for somebody different that you've never met before. Um, and most artists, and I certainly do, dream of the day when when large record companies no longer exist and when we can cut out the middleman and when we can market our product directly to, to the consumers via the internet. Because, and, and I'll, I'll say this candidly, songwriters and singers, the artistic community, the people who make the music, have been getting screwed by record companies since time began, You know, since the invention of the record business. Uh, there are a lot of legal problems with respect to piracy on the Internet. We have a thing called Napster now and a thing called mp3.com, which are being marketed as a convenient way for people to use technology. And uh, what, what those things really are is a way to steal music and to steal the livelihood, the income, the compensation that artists receive for their work, which is the way we make a living. Those companies like to portray themselves as Robin Hoods who are, who are taking money away from the big record companies, from the big corporations, but in fact they're stealing from artists as well. So there are a lot of issues, and, and we have to go to Washington and, and fight these things. Cheryl Crow and I are, have formed an artist coalition, which has been long overdue. It should have been done 20, 30 years ago. But we've got a lot of great people who have joined us, including Billy Joel and, uh, and uh, Sting and uh, Bonnie Raitt, Jimmy Buffett. Uh, I think, you know, Barbra is going to come along, I think, um A lot of of people are are signing up.
0: Well, the creators of the world need the Don Henleys of the world because this interview predates streaming, of course, when Mm -hmm. there's at least some revenue flowing to creators, but nothing like it once did. And artists, as he said, I mean, we're always the, I'll say we because I'm a songwriter, but artists, writers, creators, we're always the first to create and the last to get paid. <laughs> That's our motto. Not by design, mind you. Yes. Um, and we're just not great organizers by nature. You know, mm-hmm. we, we tend to think, we don't think collectively. And we also didn't get into the business, for most of us, just to make money. Whereas arguably people that are in the business side of it they did get into it just for the dough
1: for sure and it is interesting there's a bunch of interesting things in that last clip first where he talks about all the artists that are still that are going to be teaming up with him to take on the record companies Mm -hmm. and to change the laws so that the artists can control uh their own masters now i don't know that law i don't know how that all works did that ever happen
0: I think you have to get it into the original deal, and okay. it's very, very unlikely, unless there's a huge bidding war for your services, that any label who's invested a ton of money into the creation of those masters and then the you know, promotion of them is going to give them up too right. easily. Right, right. Why would they? And the other thing he talked about is
1: how he can't wait for the day when artists can market their music directly to the fans Hmm. where they don't need the record companies. And of course, you can do that now. But the payoff is still minute for artists. So artists like Don Henley don't make money off new music anymore these days. They make money off the catalog. And more importantly, they make money off touring.
0: Well, look to the extent that, I mean, the Eagles are a band that's clearly capable of this but look to the extent that they took control of their own destiny when they made that last album and didn't even market it through conventional retail outlets Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and
0: sold how many copies? Like 7 or 8 million copies?
1: Right. Is that the one where they went through uh, Walmart? Walmart? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So six years before
1: we spoke, the Eagles had reunited with their aptly titled Hell Freezes Over Concert and Reunion Tour, and they toured fairly consistently after that. But when I spoke to him in 2000, Don Henley said he wasn't interested in touring as an oldies act.
2: If we do tour again, I don't think anybody wants to tour again unless we have an album of new material. I don't I don't think any of us think it's, it's right or proper to keep beating the same material over and over again. Although I'm sure people, some people would like to hear it, but I think it it needs some new stuff to go along with it. Uh, we we've we've always said that we don't want to be one of these groups that keeps recycling, and recycling, and recycling old material. That's not a vital and respectable way to carry on. I don't think.
0: Well, I saw the Hell Freezes Over tour, uh, and it was truly, truly brilliant. One of the most magical moments was when they sat down stage with just the acoustic guitars. And played some of the greatest songs from that era Mm -hmm. in this most simple of forms. Yeah. The last show I saw was at the Rogers Center, maybe 2010, 2011 with the Dixie Chicks opening. And it was more of an oldie show for me.
1: Oh, really? Okay. Okay. So they'd kind of settled into being what he's saying in that clip they don't want to become. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Here they are, they're on tour, and they always have to play Hotel California and Life in the Fast Lane. And even though Don Henley's proud of those songs, he's also quite sick of them in the year 2000.
2: I think Hotel California is better, is more interesting lyrically as far as, you know, the elements of lyrics are concerned as far as metaphor and symbolism and all that sort of thing. I'm pretty tired of both of them, to tell you the truth. Um, in fact, I'm so tired of them that I have completely rearranged both of them, and we do uh, we do different versions of them now in the live in my live show. Um, Doesn't matter. I, I no, I, I don't. Um, that, was 20, that was that was twenty twenty four years ago. Years ago. So right, I right. that was a whole different life, a whole different lifetime. You know, and I'm proud of them, particularly "Hotel California." I think it's a very good piece of songwriting. And people constantly question me about what it means, and I tell them I don't know it. Whatever it means to you is what it means. Um, You know, it's the same thematically as the end of the innocence. It's about shadow and light. About about loss of innocence. It's about uh, getting an education in the big bad world. Uh, It's about excess and decadence. as it exists in America, but uh, we do a great ska version of Hotel California now with trombones and stuff, <laughs> and we do a great hip hop version of Life in the Fast Lane, which I do on uh, VH1 Storytellers, which is coming up pretty soon here. So you have to have fun with these old songs. I mean, they get stale, you know. Uh, as 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 proud as I might have I, I might be of them, that you've got to keep it fresh because after 26 years, you know, you you get a little burnt out on these things
0: that's a great segment <laughs> i'm glad you asked that because it's you know you kind of weigh the moment it's like okay do i ask something that is potentially embarrassing or uncomfortable or might get a you know an abrupt answer and you just went for it well for sure and you know at that point i'm well into the interview so right. i'm probably 45
1: minutes into a 40 so you minute got what interview. what <laughs> And but but I know that I want to ask him about the Eagles, but I need to get him on my side, and I think I did. Um, the reason why you actually don't hear the actual clips of me asking the questions in this interview is because I am off mic because we were producing a right. we were producing a radio special on this album, and all we needed were his answers. We didn't right. need the questions because well, I was going to write, and I did write about it. And by the way, you know, I am really happy to say that this. Particular interview won a couple of awards for me for uh, writing and pr- and producing. Oh, so so it's a related really, congratulations. Thank you sir. very much. It was a, just a it was a really great moment for the radio station and for myself. But it doesn't touch being there in person and talking to Don Henley. So I get forty minutes with Don Henley. Forty five minutes in, the record company guy or his assistant leans in and says, "Yeah, Don, we got to wrap this up." And Don Henley. I swear he says this. I can't find it anywhere on the tape, but I swear he says it because that's how I remember it. No, I'm going to need another 15 minutes with my friend Tom here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So as we wrapped up, I did want to talk to him about the 70s, right? I said to him that the Eagles were accused of glorifying the excess of the 70s, but I didn't think that was actually fair. I thought they were actually reporting him. So I asked him, are the accusations of you glorifying the excesses of the seventies? Are they fair?
2: Sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, we believe in firsthand reporting, and you can't report about anything that you don't participate in. So, well, I guess you can, but you know, we, we wanted firsthand knowledge. It was the seventies. You know, every everybody was going nuts. You know, it was it was the it was the last gasp of the sixties. It was a generation which was very self indulgent. But the song, you know, on a larger level is about the excess of America, which is what we were talking about earlier. The, the excesses of Western culture in general, the excesses of American society. The mentality of too much is not enough. You know, there's never enough. More of everything. Or as the Life in the Fast Lane says, everything all the time. Um, there's a line in one of the Dora songs where Jim Morrison yells, we want the world and we want it now. Um. so those songs reflected those those thoughts and those sentiments. And I think they captured the times pretty well. I mean, people tend to confine them to California, but I think they captured the essence of the nation at large. At least I hope so.
0: <laughs> oh, man, that is priceless. Yeah, <laughs> And I don't know if you remember,
1: but a few months ago, we ran that great um, Glenn Frey interview from 1988. Mm-hmm. We said, you weren't really glorifying... Um, The Excesses of the 70s in Life in the Fast. And he said, oh, but we were doing all the research necessary. (laughs) And that's kind of what Henley says here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in a few weeks, we're going to have to talk about some of the greatest music documentaries of all time. And I'm sure that we will talk about the story of the Eagles, which is a great one. So there you go. My chat from 2018 years ago with Don Henley. This is famous lost words. I'm Christopher Ward, and I'm Tom Jokic. Christopher, we were just talking about songwriting, and you were making a point about mining the depths of your own emotions when you're songwriting. And I want you to flesh that out a little bit because you are a songwriter, and um, and you know, kind of, how do you feel
0: about that? Because I found that very interesting. Well, I know that it's different for every writer. It's not there's not a universal thing, although there are some commonalities, as you'll see, by the way if you're listening to the Don Henley interview and the Sarah McLaughlin interview back-to-back mm-hmm. about process and so on. Yeah, we're just about ready to hear the Sarah interview. But for me, um, once you dig something out of yourself and your personal experience, let's say it's a painful one... Um, it almost mitigates the damages a bit. It pushes it a little bit away from you because it's now out into the public arena and you've made it into art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not to be high-minded about it, but you've, you've taken it out of the personal and hopefully into the universal. So let's say you've written a song. And
1: it is meaningful to you. It is deeply meaningful. And you bring it to an artist and they say, sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but they say, I really don't like this line here. It doesn't work for me. And you're kinda of going, Are yes. you kidding me? <laughs> this is the heart of the matter, if you don't mind me using that reference. This is where it really gets down to the nitty gritty for me and
0: are there moments. This is a good question because I've been there. And you know what, you gotta let it go. Wow. Because the the idea is really the song is king. Mm -hmm. it's not what you bring into it it's what it becomes in the process of co-writing it and if you're willing to bring those ideas in you have to be willing to let them go wow that must be difficult okay so let's
1: move on to a great songwriter at the peak of her powers so we're talking with Sarah McLachlan from 1997 upon the release of her album Surfacing a great album and a big album for her Mm -hmm. not only is she riding the high of that she's also happily married she's um, you know, a successful solo artist, of course. And she's just ready to start with Lilith there. Mm-hmm. And that is a groundbreaking all-female concert tour. This interview is from 1997. Here's Lee Ackley in conversation with Sarah McLaughlin.
3: All my records have been sort of a, a process of, of tearing away the walls that are surrounding the, the core of me. <laughs> um, and, and it definitely does help to, to be by myself uh because it's very easy for me to be distracted by things and you know it's like give me anything uh, oh geez, I gotta do laundry. I can't possibly write the song right now <laughs> you know anything's for to give me a distraction um basically because the big a large process a large part of the the process of songwriting for me is therapy is going to those places in myself that i especially with this record, don't necessarily want to go because it's hard work to get through them. And that's the whole metaphor of surfacing um you know i can see myself on the edge of this huge black lake at night which is you know the the, it was the album at the beginning and i have a terrible fear of black water because it's the unknown it's immense and dark and scary and i forced myself to jump into it and, and swim around in it and uh and that is the songs process of writing the songs then i end up coming out on the other side and uh, I surface and I feel a hell of a lot better about myself because I did all that hard work that I really didn't want to do in the first place. It's, ca- it's kind of like working out. You know, you never want to go but once you go and, and you work yourself you feel great afterwards.
4: That's, that's very interesting. Do you, uh, do you find it harder nowadays that you're not just a Sarah from around the corner in Halifax now but you are a quote unquote Sarah McLaughlin recording artist and whether you like it or not you're a star. Do you find it harder to let other people in?
3: Uh, well, definitely. Yeah, There's, I've certainly built up a few walls of protection there just because, uh, you know, I wasn't that popular as a young girl, so for a while it was very uh, enjoyable to have all these people like me. But for what reasons? They liked me because, maybe because they knew who I was, and but mostly people just liked me because I was a celebrity or whatever, you know. And, and so, I mean, that's another reason for my my immediate new family you know I, I these people have been with me for the most part since long before i was famous
4: was your song your friend when you were younger when you felt maybe a little more isolated
3: was music or yeah yeah definitely mm-hmm. it was a great solace for me solace <laughs> no pun intended to be yeah to be able to play music and, and to, to escape into that was it was a beautiful world and it was the only place for a long time that i really felt comfortable that I felt like, you know, it was a place I could go to where I, I knew who I was and I knew what I was doing and, and I, I felt really good doing it.
4: Did that transfer to the stage quite easily or did you have to get over some butterflies?
3: Not at all. I absolutely loved it. I took to it like a fish in water. Mm-hmm. The first gig I ever played when I was 17 um, was where actually the, the record company saw me and wanted to sign me. And I'll never forget that gig, Not not because of that, but just being on stage and having people... Love what I was doing. What a... The best drug in the world.
4: You can't beat that, can you? No. There's just nothing like people applauding to you, especially when, when the numbers grow.
3: Yeah, um, and, just, and just looking out in the audience and seeing people smiling or with their mm-hmm. eyes closed, just often that world that, that gives them release and, and gives them something. I mean, that's... Music is such a great gift in that way. You know, to be able to share with so many people something positive that you've, you've gotten from your life or even something negative. I mean, I, they're all the same thing for me.
4: And sharing a lot of yourself, too. Yeah. Do you feel vulnerable sometimes? No. Good.
3: Not really. It, it's the only way I know how to do it. Everybody, I mean, so many people ask me that. You know, how can you be, how can you lay yourself so vulnerable? You know, how do you do that? And I don't, I don't tend to question it that much. It's the only way I know how to do it. Yeah. It's the only way that it, it feels right to do that. And, and at the same time, I'm, you know, I, I, I do, there are things I hold back. I mean, people often ask me, what is that song about? Because I write very personal songs, I say, well, and my retort will always be, what is it about to you? Because that's what's important, what you've gotten from it. You know, I'm not going to get into my per- private soap opera with somebody I don't know.
4: It really has so much to do with people understanding how honest you are, and that's the connection you make, I think. Do you, do you get that?
3: Yeah, and I mean, that's that's a lot of of what I love of other people's music and art, too, is is. Is that uh, that sense of uh, of trust and and of honesty that and, and that like I said that's the only way I know how to write. I can't I, I can't force a song in a direction for any certain reason. It's just I have to go where it asks me to go, and that involves a lot of trusting in myself and a lot of honesty.
4: And you get support from your from your management and and musicians to to do this.
3: I've been incredibly blessed with the people who I've surrounded myself with and who have um, worked with me. You know, from, from basically from the beginning, Network Records gave me 100% creative control, not just on paper, but for real. Like, they, they let me flounder around and figure out my musical identity and uh, gave me the money and time to do that, which is quite unheard of in the music industry. And then Arista stepped up to bat as well. They're my American label. They've been fantastic. They, you know, they, they gave me the opportunity to... Uh, to prove myself, by you know, just giving me the money to make the record and letting me make the record, I didn't even give them any demos. Wow! I don't have to demo for either company, which is pretty amazing.
4: Yes, it is. Yes, it is. They don't want to mess with Sarah.
3: But I mean, most most artists don't get that opportunity, and I no, just feel don't. really, really lucky that they've allowed me that freedom.
4: Because you're not, uh, you don't have a problem with sharing personal things. Let me get slightly personal for just a second.
3: Let me guess. What are you going to ask me about? Okay, guess. My marriage.
4: Yes. How does your husband like being married to the boss?
3: <laughs> I think he likes it just fine.
4: Uh-huh. Does he feel a little more secure? He can miss that cue in the opening number and uh, realize it can be worked out later on?
3: No, as a matter of fact, he beats himself up all the more if he does miss it because he realizes, as my husband, he has to work twice as hard. Sure. So that everybody else doesn't go, oh, look, he's getting an easy ride. <laughs> no, he's very... He's he's, he's very... Uh, um driven and very motivated.
4: At any rate, let's talk about Lilith Fair. Really cool idea. Something that uh, couldn't be done a couple of years ago. Um,
3: is, is it,
4: that's what they say anyway. I think
3: promoters would have laughed at us if we had tried to put this together four years ago. hmm I really do. I mean I, I had a lot of negative reaction from promoters three years ago and I tried to have Paula Cole open up for me. And people were saying you don't want to put two women on the same bill, do you? Do you think that's smart? And I just I I, I had a good laugh over it. I thought this is ridiculous. I just think a lot of people were sort of living by these old rules that didn't really apply anymore, but weren't even really thinking about what they were saying. And, um, you know, and and the state of radio has really, really turned around in the the past four years as well. I mean, when myself and Tori Amos, our our second records came out, or my third, her second record, came out at the same time, there was was this continual uh, competition that we were pitted up against each other by the radio station saying, oh, we added Tory this week, we can't add you, which I thought was so marginalizing. It was like, oh, we added our token female this week. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like our music is so completely different from True. each other. And how dare you, you know, just lump us all in the same category just because we're women. It should be about the music, not about our sex. Um, so... Yeah, I, I don't think we could have done it four years ago, but music, uh, you know, the state of, of radio has turned around dramatically. You look at the billboard charts now, and half half the top 20 are women.
4: Whose idea was it? Mine. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> and you took it to your managers, and were they just as skeptical off the stage? No, they were yeah.
3: totally thrilled by the idea. I mean, I have, very, I have enlightened management. <laughs> They're very sweet, um... And yeah, they were they were thrilled by the idea, and they were like, "Oh, this is great! Let's." Uh, and then they, we all started brainstorming. We came up with all you know, they came up with all the ideas of the, of the different charities. And and when sponsorship became an issue, yeah, because we didn't actually need corporate sponsorship, we had the money to fund it ourselves. But we thought, well, we can get money, and we can also get them to come up to bat for us, but also for charity as well. So we're getting a couple hundred thousand dollars given to us to give to any charity we want. For all this, which is so cool.
4: What was the criteria for the artists you selected, besides being female?
3: Oh, basically, I just—I had a big wish list, mm-hmm. and so did my managers and agents. And I, curiously, a lot of them—they're pretty similar, and um, cause we like the same kind of music. And we just approached—we approached everybody, and uh, we we're very lucky. We got about ninety percent of the people that we asked, mm-hmm. and the ones that we didn't either were. Um, you know, had been touring for a long time and, and said, well, we really, we really need a break, or or in the studio. And there were, there were a few who just said no because, you know, I guess they, they thought, well, this isn't my scene or whatever. But.
4: Okay, let's 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 name a couple who, who you wanted, who you had on your wish list and you couldn't get. Let's start with Joni Mitchell.
3: Well, yeah, Joni Mitchell, but Joni hasn't said no. Mm-hmm. Oh. He hasn't said yes, but he hasn't said no. And we've got opportunities in any given night... If, if somebody decides to show up and, and wants to do a little set, you know, we'll, uh, we'll try and accommodate them, you know.
1: All right, so there you go. Sarah McLaughlin, 1997, talking about the upcoming Lilith Fair tour, and I think there might have been three tours altogether. And there's a, there a few albums, and they're Albums are excellent, and it really captures that moment in time. And one of the highlights, of course, is the Indigo Girls with "Closer to Fine." That is a great mm-hmm. performance, um, a great live version of that. I believe is on the the Little Affair kind of soundtrack, for lack of a better word. Um, I don't think, by the way, in reference to the very last part of that interview, that Joni Mitchell ever did join up that tour. Not that I know of, anyway. So I don't pr- think correct so. Me if I'm wrong, yeah, I don't. Think
0: you know so what either. I love is not only is that clearly a great moment for Sarah McLachlan, Creed creatively, and, you know, successfully, you know, having built a career over a number of albums, but as an entrepreneur, I mean, she absolutely broke ground with that. It's Mm -hmm. easy to forget that fact. And
1: you and I have talked about this before, but the ridiculousness of people in the industry, the music industry, the concert industry, not wanting to put two women together, Or the radio industry not wanting to play two songs with female lead vocals within 15 minutes of each other or in the same hour. I swear to God that did happen. Thankfully, it's not... Even close to happening anymore. In fact, you know, women dominate uh, much of the pop charts. But, but partially, shall we say, thanks to Sarah. Thanks to Sarah, absolutely. Just her ridicule. She's so incredulous at the fact that when her and Tori Amos released mm-hmm. that album at the same time, that people were saying, "Oh yeah, we've already added our token woman for the week." And her, just her incredulousness yeah. for that reveals the absurdity of it. Yeah, I think she did knock down a few walls, and just a tremendous artist. And Boy, you want to see someone who's happy on Twitter? You know how Twitter can be a cesspool for really negative people? Oh, yeah. One of the most zen and happy people on Twitter is Sarah McLaughlin. So I highly recommend you follow her. You'll get your daily dose of happiness and sunshine. And, you know, she's a very deep artist. She runs very deep. So it's not all... You know, poppies and flowers with her, uh, but she does certainly does present a happy face on Twitter. We get it all in it's, that interview.
0: That's that's what I love because uh, she talks too. about the the painful part of the process of mm. songwriting. And did you notice how much was analogous between her techniques and Don Henley's? Absolutely, both incredibly sort of detailed artists, very demanding of themselves, very willing to kind of dig into their mm-hmm. own experiences and put them out there. Mm-hmm. And you know, writing in layers
1: and writing so that it's really meaningful to them. And when it's really meaningful meaningful to them it strikes the listener as being very honest and that honesty somehow um, and maybe it's just because it's couched in a beautiful melody it's wrapped in a beautiful melody and it's a beautiful song with beautiful lyrics and all of a sudden you cannot top that that does it for this week's episode you can follow us on facebook and instagram at famous lost words and on twitter at famous lost pod thanks to our producer adam karsh executive producer rob farina